I'm not saying that being a great engineer doesn't help you in some ways in being a great engineering manager. I'm just saying that in the foundational aspects of being an effective people manager are totally separate things than your role as an engineer. That is contrary to the way we treat it. This person does a good job as a contributor and they one day find themselves now with a team of engineers under them. And there's something so busted about looking at it that way. Welcome back everyone to Building Better Games. Everyone has had a bad boss. Some of you might have a bad boss or a boss you're frustrated with right now. Maybe you've quit a job before because of a boss. Maybe you're a boss yourself and deep down you feel like you have no idea what the hell you're doing. No doubt you've asked yourself questions like, why is people management so poor across the board in our industry? What can I do to improve as a people manager? Or how can I help my manager manage me? What are some dirty management realities that nobody's talking about? Or maybe you suspect there are some realities that nobody's talking about. We've been there and it's not your fault. However, there's a lot that we need to understand and a lot we can do today to make this better. We have an epidemic of poor management practices and structures in our industry. This episode is going to be some real talk about those problems and how we need to solve them. Let's go. One of the things I like to point out about meetings is that we love to hate them. It's a popular and accepted form of fitting in to, if you're in any company, to talk poorly about the meetings you're in. And it can feel like when you're the person trying to schedule the meetings, which I've certainly been some number of times in my life, frustrating when everybody's complaining about the meetings and then you try to understand why. And sometimes actually you've done a good job of creating high value meetings and people are bought in and no, they don't want to not do it because I've even canceled meetings and had people recreate them because actually, no, we did want that meeting, but I just really like to complain about it. Bosses seem to fit to me in the same spot, not necessarily that we all hate them, but it's that like management, like people management just isn't great. It's not good. You just got to deal with it. If you find a good manager, stick with them as long as you can. You know, if you get a bad one, run the other way. And it's just, it's this accepted thing. It's this normal thing to view people management, your boss, etc., as just a necessary evil inside of a system that, you know, hopefully the rest of it's pretty good. And that to me, that shared expectation now pushes against the idea that we would fix this because you sort of, it's a fact from the ground level. It's a fact that this is just the way it is and there's nothing you can do about it. It's uh, imprinted into the, the consciousness of us as workers. A few things were jumping through my head while you were talking. One, the value a manager provides, a good manager provides is generally considered high but is very difficult to measure. If I'm sitting at the top of like a 400 person company and I have two different people and one's being successful and one's not, do I know that any of that is due to their manager? And if so, how? Do I reward the manager when the people that they manage do well or not? Do I not care about that? Is there no system in place that sort of sees that and observes that? And there's 
problems in all directions because sometimes people excel under bad management and sometimes people fail under good management. And your ideal case is you have someone excelling under good management and that's really like rocket fuel into their career and their trajectory. But it's really hard from the outside to determine is this person a good manager or not? And so when you were talking through this, some of the things that were coming up for me, one is that, two is we don't actually distinguish the skill set of management from whatever else somebody's supposed to be doing. And part of that's because at some point, most companies just knight someone as a manager. You're a dame now, right? Like you now have management responsibility. This is a promotion and now you have to manage these people. And they're going, yeah, but this is so low priority. I'm There's nothing in this system that incentivizes me to be a good manager. Everything in the system incentivizes me to continue being a craft expert, a leader, all these different things. And then to do just enough to not be obviously a bad manager. And I'm not trained on any of that. I'm kind of figuring out as I go from the managers I've had in the past, what I liked, what I didn't like. I'll try not to do what I didn't like. I'll try to do what I liked. And you know, you talked about transparency. And for me, I look at it and I go, one of the reasons I think it's so opaque is because it's chaos in there. Like, it's actually that if I talk to four different managers within the same discipline at a large organization, are they going to have the same standards for what it means for someone to be promoted for someone? And the problem is, in most cases, that answer is no, they won't. And it's going to have a lot to do with how much they like the people or the person that they want to promote and how much political influence they can exert over the organization. And if I do say, yep, they have the exact same standard, it's probably because that company made the other mistake of management and turned everything into a bunch of purely objective tick boxes that now everybody in their organization is trying to check off as they go through their career. And in both cases, we're not getting the actual value we could be out of management. And it why is that surprising? Because we don't even know what that is and we don't know how to measure it. We don't know how to understand it and we don't incentivize it. Let's talk about, oh my gosh, so many like aberrant patterns are coming up into my head right now. And I actually want to talk about those. What are the examples of bad management? Because you just touched on a couple. One of them is, you know, we both talked about, which is like this idea of transparency and like, is the system transparent and knowable? Mm -hmm. And like, oh my God, have I heard some bad reasons when I've confronted managers on why their systems are unknowable. I've actually, I shit you not, I've had managers tell me, even CEOs tell me that they don't want their systems to be too transparent because if people figure out how to win in the system, then they'll start winning as an imperative and then they'll lose their best talent. To like, they'll go to other places when they realize that they can't get paid enough or advance enough there. Oh, wow. And so by keeping the system as obtuse as they can, they're like, well, you know, if my good talent doesn't really know how good they are, then like they'll stick around longer. And I'm just like, I'm horrified by that. And that's just one thing off the top of my, my head. So like what comes up for you? when you think about like bad examples of management or the bad impacts of bad management? First thing that popped up for me is an interesting one. It was unhealthy competition within a discipline. As the 
in an environment where there's not some amount of clarity, uh, which again, I'm not saying is a bunch of checkboxes, but there's some amount of clarity about what it means to be promoted and what it means to excel, that people do a lot of looking at other people who got promoted when they didn't, and they start doing this like internal calculus of whether anything's fair or not. And because each person, now that's going to happen, I think, regardless, it's a, just a way people are wired. If I see somebody get promoted and I think I do more work than them. Even if I have very little context on them and very little awareness of what they do, you know, I might be upset about that. And they might be like, oh, the system's unfair. I should be promoted too, or they shouldn't have been promoted if I'm not promoted or whatever. I'm not, I can't solve for all of that. But I think in the absence of there being clarity and alignment between managers within a discipline, that's far more likely to happen. And people are going to almost be looking to like, again, it's like this competitive can be sort of backstabby, like, yeah, we're all on the same team, but if you kind of fail really badly and it makes me look good, I'm really, I'm actually pretty okay with that because we're all playing this game of how can we get promoted? How can we advance? And none of us know the rules. And so your failure, if I simplify everything down to a zero sum game, your failure is to some extent my success. You know, you mentioned one, by the way, which is this sort of like dubbing this sort of knighthood element of like, you have performed well in your role as an engineer. Now you shall be an engineering manager. And uh, this sort of unwillingness to acknowledge that like to be a good people manager is a skill set of its own, separate from whatever you do in your craft. And I'm not saying that being a great engineer doesn't help you in some ways in being a great engineering manager. I'm just saying that in the most core foundational aspects of being an effective people manager are totally separate things than your role as an engineer. And I think that is contrary to the way we treat it, where it's like this person does a good job as a contributor and they just sort of one day find themselves now with a team of engineers under them. And, and I think that there's also this message with that approach, in addition to the ridiculousness of like, well, you're obviously gonna make a great manager because you wrote great code. It's also, you, we're sort of honoring you by giving you this like stable of resources that you now manage. And there's something so busted about looking at it that way. That so often that person placed in that role <laughs> yeah. wasn't interested in that, or if they were, were more interested in it because it was a pay raise and because now they have like you said, a stable of people that can do the boring work for them. I know an engineer who was given a direct report and didn't want one, didn't ask for one, was perfectly happy to continue to write high quality code, had zero interest in branching off into a bunch of soft skills, which are hard to learn, hard to develop. And so what did they do? They did the bare minimum they could do. They found little pieces of work that were kind of valuable and easy enough for their person, and they just tossed them that work whenever they asked. Did they try to train them to be a better architect themselves? Did they hand them meaningful work? Did they collaborate with them? Did they spend time teaching them? Did they figure out if they needed training or if they thought their career was going? No, they did none of that. They were just like, hey, uh, I guess, you know, you work for me now, so here's some work. Please don't bother me and get your work done. And if you don't do it well enough, I'll probably fix it and not even say anything bad about you because I don't want to deal with paperwork. And so like, we're all stuck with this. Just make the best. And it's like, well, now we wonder why do people have a negative view of management when that is a common pattern? 
So if I had a bunch of junior talent that I brought in, let's say I'm an art director, right? And I've got some art managers, some leader artists that have been knighted as art managers, and they've got a bunch of mid-level and junior artists in there. A weird thing can happen where the promotion of, let's say a lot of those junior and mid-level artists are highly successful, and we start realizing that, oh my gosh, they're doing phenomenal work. They're adding a ton of value. We need to promote them because not only are they producing more and higher quality work, and so the demonstration of their expertise is up, but they're also like collaborating with each other. They're solving novel problems related to art, and they're talking to other disciplines, and they're they're these people are starting to behave like the what we call senior artists here. For me, I go, awesome, promote them. They are adding a ton of value. They're adding more value than you expected them to add. Everybody's going to, and what you're going to end up with is a team of, team of senior artists. And then, you know, maybe, maybe you don't need that many senior artists on that team because actually senior artists are a lot more effective at solving the art problems. And so you need to like figure out how to split them off and go do these things, but they're all adding value and you recognize that. However, the constraints of the system say you can't promote all those people or you can't give them all raises, or you can't like, nope, sorry, you can't do that. And so this is that whole thing of, you know, that drives them out of your organization as they start realizing, hey, I'm doing phenomenal work. You're not rewarding me. I'm kind of mad at you as my boss, but I also recognize that the answer you're giving me as to why that like there's just not money in the budget could very well be true. Unfortunately, I'm still here. And so my optimal play now is to leave and go somewhere where I can be properly compensated for the labor I'm producing. And again, in a, in a world where you're really clear, like you said, the CEO who told you, like, I don't, you know, if they, if they knew, if only, you know, if I create the system and that they could actually start understanding what it meant, to, then they'd end up getting to a point where I could no longer pay them and then they quit. A really good senior engineer is so much better than a really good associate engineer, not to take anything away from the really good associate engineer, that even though I'm paying them maybe four, five, six times as much, I don't consider that not worth it to have them on staff for their experience, the tribal knowledge they have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like all the things, right? The point is you want people to be growing and producing value, but if you create these systems where you can't actually do anything with them once they do, like your system doesn't know how to handle if everybody's really successful. Again, it makes sense why we don't actually have clarity around these things. And it's just stuff that was coming up as you were talking about this. It, like I look at this and I go, we're not incentivized to be good managers. We're not taught to be good managers. The systems actually encourage a static model. Yeah, almost like an HR babysitting kind of role like make yeah. sure that like everyone stays within bounds again and push down the underperformers and, and pull up the overperformers. But really, it's just like a giant vat where everything's just you let it play itself out. But the, but the idea that you're an active facilitator, like some kind of a steward directly in each one of those individuals careers and lives, that may be the paradigm shift that we're talking about between like the old Taylorist idea where you're sort of managing resources again. They do the tasks and they do the work. And if people don't show up, you fire them. And if somebody does a lot more work than everybody else, you promote them. And, you know, it's, it's a very simple model 
and 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 we're I think perhaps we're realizing, especially in technology and in game development and creative development, that that doesn't work anymore. That like what people really want, what organizations and what employees really want is somebody who is like an active facilitator of their individual success. And that that's that's one of the shifts that's happening over the last like 50 years. You know, there may be more to cover here, honestly. But, you know, we're actually going to dig into a lot of the frameworks that we use around solving some of these problems. But I want to ask you about a couple more things. One of the things you and I spoke about a lot that we we left out or sort of omitted by accident in a lot of the previous conversations we've had with industry leaders about management. And one of them was something you and I, I think, probably took for granted to a degree Uh, not least of all because we took this seriously as managers, is the idea of like the principles and frameworks and methods that we're going to be conveying to all of you throughout this podcast and or the subsequent ones when we talk about management, what's going to be implied in that is a lot of effort on your part. And we recognize that and we've talked about this a little bit just in the last 20 minutes that not everybody is like in a position to put that effort out, whether it's because you don't have the right training or whether it's because if you sat down with your boss, who's a VP right now, and you said, hey, just so you know, I'm going to cordon off 30% of my personal time to actively work with all eight of my direct reports and make sure that they have a clear career path, clear achievement frameworks, all this clear accountability, all this stuff, you know, your boss might turn around and say, that's crazy. I have more important work for you to be doing. Put that on coast mode and forget about it. Like there's a lot of companies that might force you into that position. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we understand that we don't want to trivialize what we're proposing here. Um, We want to make sure everybody understands that being a good manager, being an active and involved manager is more necessary than ever. We're going to talk about that more in a second, but is also time consuming. And it's a valuable endeavor. Like it's going, there are going to be times where you wonder if it's worth, the juice is worth the squeeze. There's going to be times where other people push back. There's going to be times where you might feel like you're not adding as much value. But if you take management, people management as a craft and a skill set seriously, you have to lean in. And if you can't lean in, then similar to a lot of the other advice Ben and I give, you should question the organization you're working at or the core philosophy that you're kind of involved in. I want to also add this. We're talking about this. This is time intensive. There's going to be a lot of other priorities. You know, one of the personal choices I made was to make sure that managing people stayed at the top of my priority stack. I'm not saying at every minute of every day or anything like that. There were other times where things blew up and I had to deal with it or whatever. have to push off a one-on-one or something like that. But broadly speaking, I wanted to live in a world where managing other people was my highest priority work because if I can develop more and better people through good management, I force multiply my entire organization. Now, here's the problem with this. Like it's a long tail payoff. You are not incentivized to do this. So to be a good manager, I think is highly worthwhile. It takes courage. It takes courage. It's a choice you have to make that in most places, the system is not going to encourage you to make. The bar for good enough management in most places is so low 
that for you to choose to step above that and to try to do this well for your own growth, learning, improvement as an individual, ability as a leader, you're going to benefit from it immensely from the skills you have to gain in a lot of stuff. And also for the people you lead. Yeah. One benefit I want to call out is like, I think very, very excellent and efficient managers, people managers who, who develop deeply these skills that we're referring to um, also actually have to do a lot less work. That's the truth. If you have an amazing There's team, yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you have an amazing team of highly capable focused individuals that understand exactly what they need to do to add value and also progress their careers because you've done that diligence, you can set that up so that you have very little stress and burden compared to a lot of other managers who, again, basically just scale, they just scale task work and that's all they do. Yeah. Okay. So four principles that Aaron and I came up with, this is how to be a good boss. Number one, growth. One of the key things that a manager does is creates a clear and valuable and understandable trajectory for their direct reports. Yeah, this is kind of what we were just talking about, about the idea of plotting the course. Yes. And this is more than just, hey, you're going to work here for a little bit. And then in six months, I'll see if I can move you to this role. This is also setting up the whole environment for this person to succeed. One thing we'll say very clearly you are not responsible for your direct report success. You are responsible for them being in an environment where they can succeed. Yeah. And so this growth is a lot about that and helping them identify, I'm going to set up the path. I'm going to clear the road for you. You're going to walk down it. Yes. And I think that uh, one thing to note here is that one element to that will probably be the growth trajectory that's baked into your organization within that person's discipline. Mm -hmm. So like if, in other words, if I'm an associate art lead, how do I become an art director or whatever? Um, but there's another aspect of this, which is where does that person want to go with their career and what kinds of things do they want to do and what skills yes. do they want to develop? I think that sometimes I see a manager focusing on too much on the first and not enough on the second or the vice or vice versa. And mm -hmm. it needs to be both, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think as a manager, when it comes to the growth principle, part of your responsibility is to find a harmonious confluence of those two things. Right. And I think, you know, there's there's no right answer, by the way, to what is the perfect balance between those two things. You know, Ben and I have, between the two of us, talked ad nauseum about our different perspectives. And what I'm talking about there is like, for me, I was always a company man first. The way I think about it is like a person's growth needs to uh, impact the bottom line of the company. And that the idea, the value of a person's growth is that it affects the bottom line of the company. And therefore the company becomes more successful. It pays all of our paychecks. And then we get to keep playing this game we call work. But if the company goes out of business, we're all out of jobs and then it doesn't fucking matter who's growing and who's not anymore because we're all unemployed. Right. And so that being said, I do believe in my heart of hearts that doing the right thing by each individual is actually ultimately really positive for the bottom line of the organization. And so it ends up being very close. This isn't about, oh, hey, it's performance review time, you know, do some scratch docs and make some things and send some stuff to HR. It's like, no, 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 no. This is an active and consistent, yes, persistent behavior that you need. This is where you lean in. And again, you should be checking in with that direct report about how they're 
going along the path to that journey. There should be some a handful of goals there that are outlined, yeah. that are a combination of their personal goals plus the things that the company needs from them. And you should be coming back to those goals on a regular basis. Like, how are we doing on these? By the way, one thing I want to point out about these growth plans is Ben and I have also spoken a lot uh, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this too, Ben, about this sort of um, spectrum of the company is either has no framework. And so it's almost like this high school popularity contest to see who gets promoted. Or we have like almost an oppressive framework. Yeah. The check in the box check, box check, box check. Yeah. So this is actually, I think you're blending with the first two points. So we said number one was growth, right? Yeah. And number two is integrity. And when we say integrity, we're not talking about personal integrity. Yes, that's important. But we're actually talking about the integrity of the system. And that involves it being transparent, understandable. And one of the things that I think we don't value enough, and this was something that I was struck by when I became a manager at a place that actually took management relatively seriously. And yet still, when I became a manager in the production discipline, one of the things I noticed is that there wasn't really a clear standard of what the difference between an associate producer, a mid-level producer, and a senior producer was, right? Let's say you have just that simple structure. Maybe you've got like intern, associate, mid, senior, director, right? Boom. That's it. That's, that's your system. If you're a manager inside that system, you have in your head an intuitive understanding of what the difference between a mid and a senior is. If you were to share that and work on that and figure that out, it's usually not box checking. It's usually, well, a mid runs a team of 10 people and a senior runs a team of 30 people. Those are not the important variables here. There's other stuff. It's about how they solve problems, how well they work with others, all these different things. And if you can actually take the time to try to articulate that, and by the way, as someone who did a lot of development and working on interview kits, I actually had to like go through and say, if you ask this question, these answers mean this level of seniority according to this question. And we're going to sort of sum all this up. And there was this, you had to do the conscious work. If you're a manager, part of creating a system with integrity is doing the work to understand the difference between associate and mid and senior. And in a way that's not a bunch of box checking. Yeah. It has to be, has to be a knowable, and I think mostly consistent system because that that's it's interesting. I feel like obtuse systems or no systems or highly yep. defined systems can ultimate ultimately end up with a lot of variability because for different reasons, like when you have a system of box checking, it's like, again, like you said, it almost becomes a game. And then it's yep. like how effective the players are at winning at the game. And the game is not necessarily value. So if you have an associate leader and you're wondering how to get them to mid, maybe you don't have a clear framework around this. Think about what you would need them to demonstrate to feel good and for you and other people to feel good about promoting them. Yes. And again, that's just the start of the conversation. I'm not saying you're done once you bullet list four things, but that'll at least anchor you in something more concrete. I'll give you some examples of this too, of things that I, I would avoid inside of the system and things I would that I actually used in some of my development of the system. I avoid things like number of people led, number of teams they're on. Like, it's not that those things are irrelevant, but they are more opportunities for the demonstration 
that Aaron's talking about of behavior that indicates their level of their higher level of seniority than their current title that that would indicate a promotion is necessary. So not number of people, not like years worked, not relevant. Those aren't demonstrations of anything, really. No, that's just like, okay, cool. And you know, there, there's a lot of these systems out there that your time and role is a big indicator of like when you're going to get promoted. And it's kind of tragic because some people spend a very long time doing very little as a result of these systems and continually being promoted. Now, things that might be on there, um, especially like I'll, I'll talk about one specifically from an associate mid. One of the things I wanted to see out of a mid-level leader, right? So not necessarily like a mid-level artist or something like that, but a mid-level leader who was currently titled associate, what did I want to see to know that they were ready for mid? I wanted to feel like I could take them out of their current context and put them almost anywhere in the company in that expert leader role and they would be successful. This is somebody who I felt like could generically lead a thing that made sense for a mid-level anywhere in the company. They didn't have to be like, well, I've always worked in content production and art. I have to always work in content and arts. Like, no, I could drop you into an engineering team and you'd be able to actually figure that out without, you know, suddenly needing a ton of air support. Like you'd, because your leadership fundamentals are strong enough that you can lead outside of a known space and be good at it. And again, it goes back to that word demonstrate. What we're not trying to do is suggest that any of those examples we're giving are like good examples. Like you need to have that be a requirement. No, but, you know, yeah. but that's an, a great example. The one Ben just gave of something that somebody would have to demonstrate, right? Like that's okay. Six months later, the person has worked on two different teams and they killed it on both. Boom, nailed, right? Like that's a clear right. demonstration. Yeah. I really believe a lot of these problems are actually like, like I said earlier, if we don't have a clear system, you're going to have another, an emergent system take its place. And an emergent system is probably going to be low integrity. So like, I feel like in a situation where women are doing the same work as men and getting paid less or getting fewer promotions, that would be definitionally a low integrity system. And who can blame the women for being really pissed off about that? So these are the kinds of things that, I think managers really need to think about, you need to be deliberate about this and you need to fight against low integrity inputs into your system. So, okay, we've talked about growth as the first principle. We've talked about integrity of the system as a second principle. The third principle is accountability. And accountability, we've mentioned this before, gets talked about a lot. Everybody seems to want more of it and nobody seems to understand what it is other than people aren't doing the stuff I want I would like it if they did. And so I look at the leaders around me, I'm like, why aren't you more accountable? And why is there no accountability here? And it's like stuff isn't happening that you want to have happen or stuff is happening that you don't want to have happen. Let's actually talk about an, a quick accountability model. We have an entire episode on this we'll put in the show notes, but let, we're just going to really quickly run you through the, the model that we use to actually create accountability that leads to outcomes that are positive and helps everybody understand what expectations are. So Aaron, do you want to roll through that? Or do you yeah, sure. Yeah. So our, our four bullets for accountability, the four phases of accountability are set expectations, negotiate expectations, have a commitment be made, perhaps from one party or both parties, and then hold. So holding is the part where you check back in and you say, how's it going? Are we on track to meet these commitments? Do we need to modify the commitment? Or is there a consequence for a failed commitment or a consequence for a succeeded commitment? So it's basically the framework that allows you to sort of pull all this stuff together, right? So we talked about, again, this idea of having 
a growth plan, a growth trajectory, like a you've set a path forward for this individual as a manager. And the accountability is the engine that allows you to get there successfully and allows you to have your checks and balances along the way. And if you've sat down and you've laid out that growth plan, you've set that goals, that person feels like those goals reflect their desires and the path they want to take as a person and also the needs of the company, then they make commitments and perhaps projects. Like we talked about this idea of demonstrating, perhaps you've picked projects that you feel will demonstrate the capabilities they need to move forward in their journey. They commit to those projects. You sit down, you agree on what that commitment means. You check back on that commitment. This could be like in the form of like a 90 day plan or something like that. There's a million tools to do this, but the idea is that that accountability framework where you sit down and you talk about what it means for them to commit to a certain project, why that project, which project's more important than what other project. And then they say, okay, boss, I'm going to do this. And if they rack up enough of those successes, your conversation about the promotion, your conversation about the mid-year comp adjustment or whatever it is, is so much easier because now you just pull out that list and you're like, hey, look, everybody knows it. They set these objectives for themselves. They said they were going to do these five things and they did all of them and they're, they're killing it. And you have that as a record now. And that's, that's not a box checky approach. That's brass tacks. And that's exactly why accountability can help really tie this in. And accountability provides a framework for you to regularly have those conversations with your direct reports in a way that's productive, in a way that's like egalitarian and fair and compassionate, but also holds them accountable for the stuff that they say they're going to do. And that's the beauty of it. And again, we won't go super deep into that. There's another podcast about that you can check out. I wish I could tell you which episode it was. Just search for accountability and, and there's a deep dive on that. So. Yeah, what I will do, I'll do a quick run through of just each of those points with a with a smidge more detail, just so that like if you this is all you get to listen to, you have something there that you can hang your hat on a little bit. Um, so yeah, first step, set expectations. This is both parties coming together and talking about the person that is going to be held accountable by the person that will be holding them accountable. Both parties bring their expectations to the table. They talk about, hey, this is what I'm expecting to do. This is what I'm expecting you to do. Then you negotiate. Odds are there's some amount of misalignment there. It's unlikely that you just get to put all those in a pile and go like, yeah, just do all of it. There might not be enough time for that. We may have to figure out, hey, some things that you wanted to do, we actually, those aren't as important as some other things I needed to do for the sake of the team or the company. There may be factors you didn't consider, right? Exactly, right? And that can happen on both directions. Um, you know, you may find out that there's a life circumstance going on that means that you have all these expectations for a direct report for someone you're managing and actually they... Are, there's no way they're going to be able to meet all those. You have to now negotiate. You talk about that. You figure that out together. Then we go into the commit. The commit is just the person being held accountable going, we've set our expectations. We've negotiated. I've, now I put my hand in the center and I say, yep, I agree. I'm going to work towards these things. And you as the person holding them accountable agree that you're going to help them insofar as it's as you can to accomplish these things as well. You don't just get to abandon them. And then we go on to holding accountability. A couple things about holding accountability. Technically, it's the only thing you have to do for there to be accountability inside of a system. But it works much better if you precede it with the other three steps. The other thing I would say about a holding accountability, do not see this as a single point in time. We set up six months goals. See in six months, this is an ongoing thing. Life changes a lot. We're in game development. Everything is changing all the time. There's so much chaos, so much uncertainty inside the system. So 
set up ways to check in with the person you're holding accountable and for them to check in with you and update you on how things are going. It may be that one of the goals that you set suddenly doesn't make sense anymore. You don't want them driving towards a goal that doesn't make sense because four months ago we said it mattered when now it really doesn't. So hold accountability and continue to hold accountability. And one of the key parts that happens with this one is consequence. When I say consequence, I don't just mean punishment. I also mean reward. All of these things should be baked in. The other thing that is a key first step of consequence if something doesn't go well is learning. You One of the first consequences of like, hey, something happened that we didn't expect. You didn't reach a goal or whatever. What did we learn from that should be a first question for both the person that failed to achieve their goal and for the person holding them accountable. So start there. It's only when you start seeing consistent failure over time that you move towards a place of like consequence in the negative sense, like we think of as punishment or, you know, like, okay, wait, what's going on? You're not doing well, that sort of thing. Because it's natural for people not to hit everything out of the park the first try or even ever, right? Sometimes in some organizations, there's enough volatility where if you set five goals and you hit three of them, that's A plus work. So keep that in mind as well. So one of the things I want to clarify is Ben and I talk a lot about advocacy and it's something that's really, really important to us. And what it means is that in essence, you need to cordon off a certain amount of your influence and political capital as a manager, as a people manager in taking care of your people and making sure that they get rewarded for good behavior and that the organization recognizes their achievements. This could be something as simple as Hey, do people know that this person crushed their last project? Do people know that the last five major things that they said they were going to do, they did all five of them? Does that, is there even awareness there? A bigger example could be when you recognize that there's some kind of senior management meeting and you get called in and they get, we, we're talking about everyone in the discipline and who's going to get promoted and who's not. Are you making sure that your people are being fairly assessed in terms of being part of those promotions or not, or are you just kind of taking a seat back seat and trying not to make any waves in the corner? So one of the things that will help you with this, as we talked about earlier, is if you have solid accountability between you and your direct reports, that will make any advocacy move you make cheaper because you will have to spend less of your personal influence because you have recorded data yep. showing what your people achieved. It's not arguable, right? Like this is signed off on. They said they were going to do it. Their teams agree. It was transparent to everybody. They nailed it. Done. It's This is now on the public record, right? Like this isn't you making an argument anymore. And so what you've now done is by doing that diligence, you've made it cheaper. Every single advocacy action you take where you're like, hey, we should promote her. She Look at, she killed it. All of her goals, every 90-day plan she had this whole year, she killed it. Like that's not your word against mine anymore. That's, that's the public record. And so it makes it cheaper. You have to spend less of your influence and political capital if you do a good job with accountability. Another thing is, is regardless of how cheap you make that, you need to be ready to spend your political capital. And I think that there's an ethical issue here that Ben and I feel strongly about, which is as a manager, you need to be out there making sure your people's achievements are recognized. Because we've all had a boss that did not advocate for us for whatever reason. We talked about it at the beginning of this podcast, and it's very painful. It's very painful to feel like you're doing all the right things and that you're trying so hard and that nobody sees it because no one's out there singing your praises. Like this is something that can easily be forgotten and it's very, very critical. And so that is kind of what we're talking about when we talk about this idea of advocacy as the fourth principle. Yeah. And this is 
partially due to the hierarchical nature of having a boss. If you are a boss, you almost certainly have more organizational influence, political influence inside of the structure that you're sitting in than the person you're managing because you're their boss. And a couple things here. One, you need to practice advocacy. If you're not a boss right now and you're struggling to advocate for yourself, you are going to struggle to advocate for somebody if you eventually become a boss. So start practicing. Start working on your advocacy now. Start working on your advocacy for yourself. It will help you later. That's one piece because there is, again, you're going to be in a position of greater influence and you want to use that for good and the good of your people. We're not saying if your people are failing, advocate on their behalf, even though they're failing. This, again, that's, that's, that's a, a low, low integrity, integrity framework. <laughs> yeah, it's a low integrity system, right? So the advocacy is often on the behalf of the manager or the boss uh, for their employee to the broader organization in ways that the employee themselves, the person that you're managing, they can't do on their own. And that's, that's just a, a reality of the system, right? They don't have as much push and reach. That's where accountability could also be a two-way street. Like that may be yeah. a thing you commit to as a manager is like, hey, I really need you to knuckle down and do this project that's like super critical, even though I know it's not your favorite thing. But if you nail this- Here's this positive consequence. Exactly. I'm committing to you that you can move to this like cool content team that you've been wanting to go to. Yeah. And I'm going to support you with that and I'll grease the wheels to get you over there. And by golly, you have to- follow through with that commitment because now you're accountable, right? As the manager, but that's a good example of a thing you might commit to as a manager. And, and, and that really helps you find that balance that Ben is talking about there. Yes. Okay. Quick recap then. Four principles of being a good boss. One, growth. Are you setting up the person you're managing for their growth? Are you setting up that environment? Some of this goes into advocacy as well, but are you setting up that environment? Are you clearing the road for them and then letting them be responsible for their own success? They actually walk the path. You set it up. Two, integrity. Is there integrity in the system? Is this a system that people can know and understand? It doesn't mean everything needs to be a clean box where once I, once I am in charge of 12 people, that means I get promoted to the next level or once I've got five years of experience, I'm a senior. That's not what we're talking about, but we are talking about really stopping and thinking about what it means to go from associate to mid to senior and helping your people understand that in a way that's demonstrable, that you can see in behavior that's clear to the broader organization. Three, accountability. Use that model, set expectations, negotiate, commit, and then hold accountability. If you do this, it'll help everything be more clear. And again, these things all reinforce each other. That really works, only works inside of a system that has integrity. Finally, advocacy. Are you willing to spend your political capital? Are you willing to influence the organization on behalf of your people to make sure that they are recognized for the good work they are doing? If you're doing these four things well, we believe you're probably being a good boss. Cool. All right, do you want me to just run the conclusion now? Yeah. yeah. I think, okay, cool. Okay, uh, here are our conclusions. First, bad management is everyone's problem. Don't wait for someone else to solve this. Start solving it yourself. Even if you're the person being managed, you can suggest some of these systems to your manager um, and that will help you. Number two, watch for the incentives that drive good and bad management practices. See how you can encourage the incentives that drive good management practices. Recognize it's not like a bunch of mean people that want evil for the world. It's people responding to systems and, uh, for the most part that are... It poorly incentivized to be good managers. Number three, being somebody's boss should be a high, if not the highest priority in your professional life. Don't put this as like a side project, a thing you do when you don't have other work to do. 
take your one-on-one seriously, take setting up the system of integrity seriously, take this stuff seriously. Number four, if you do this right, it will take time. Being a boss is something you invest in and get better at. Otherwise, you're failing your people. Don't just be a good enough boss to meet the very low minimum bar of good enough manager. Go above. Remember the four management principles, growth, integrity, accountability, and advocacy. Number six, your ability to be an effective boss is in no way related to your ability to execute your craft. If you're a great engineer, it doesn't mean you'll be a great boss. We need to stop pretending this is true. This still runs, this is way too common in the games industry. Um, it's just, it, I think some industries are figuring this out. The games industry just is not. Just because someone's a, a great senior artist does not mean they're gonna be a great boss. Break that connection, recognize this is a new skill set. Not everybody's interested in learning it. If you enjoyed this content, we invite you to join game developers across the world and sign up for our Building Better Games newsletter. You can do that at buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Every two weeks, we will deliver at least one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Thanks a lot for listening.